everyone. Welcome back to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. Today marks the end of season two. We spent a lot of time exploring different types of mental health and psychology professions. On today's episode, my guest is Clarissa Arms Chavez, PhD. She is an experimental social psychologist. To find out more about season three, please visit www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. All right, so I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Clarissa Arms Chavez. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. So, hello, everyone. Um, I am, like Crystal said, uh, Dr. Arms Chavez. I'm actually an associate professor over here at um, Auburn University in Montgomery, so it's over in Alabama. I'm also a department chair for the, the department as well, and I am really more of an experimental social psychologist, so I like to do experiments on people um, and try to figure out why they do what they do. And um, I'm also a professor, associate professor, so I have tenure. Yay! Yay, tenure! And uh, <laughs> yay! job security is always nice. Um, but I teach undergraduate uh, classes, and I also teach graduate classes. Um, and I teach about three classes a semester. And then I do some research, too. So I've got a little bit of everything going on. I'm also, I've been married now for 14 years. Um, and I have two kids. So I have one that's 14 and one that is four. All right. <laughs> so I'm very busy, busy. I can imagine. So that's a lot of stuff you do. When people think of psychologists, I think people think like... Freud or something. Clinical, yeah. Right, like clinical stuff. And so can you talk to us a little bit about the type of psychologist that you are, just kind of the differences between your, I guess, stereotypical psychologist uh -huh. versus the yeah. experimental psychologist that you are? For sure. I mean, this is also a question that comes up a lot. I teach um, introduction to psychology quite a bit and this comes up a lot in that class because you have the typical you know 17 18 year old student who's coming in thinking just what you said that psychology is all about Freud it's all about laying on a couch and talking about all your feelings and that's you know all that psychology is and that's so not the case in fact clinical even counseling psychology is just one small section of psychology when we when I teach intro I always make a point to kind of point out you know we have this huge book 14 15 some chapters of information and disorders clinical psychology is only one chapter so there's a lot of psychology that is experimentally based research, trying to figure out how does the brain work when it's healthy? How um, you know are things supposed to function? And what are some of the other external factors? Like I'm a social psychologist, which I also argue bleeds quite well into clinical psychology because we can look at a lot of the external situational social factors that play into a lot of the clinical issues that a clinician would look into. And so 
I don't, I always kind of joke, make a joke, but it's true that I'm not the psychologist that helps people. So I'm not doing therapy. I'm the one that's kind of messing with your brain. I'm the one that's trying to trick you up and to experiment on you and see why people do what they do. And without all these other branches of psychology, um, clinicians would have a really hard time understanding what it is that's going on. To understand clinical psychology, you have to understand the biological aspect of neurotransmitters and um, how drugs can mess with those. You have to understand the situational aspects that go into that, um, developmental aspects that go into that. So we all need to kind of work together to help solve the problems that clinicians are trying to to achieve. I completely agree with you. I Actually, so I want to give a little bit of background on how I know you. And so when you talked about um, that you're a social psychologist, like an experimental psychologist, I met Claire. Um, She was my very first supervisor ever like in my college career right so I mean I you (laughs) provided me a lot of guidance and I learned how to write well and I learned how to talk to professors um I learned a lot of things from you all and I want to thank you for that because um you kind of helped me launch into my career so I'm I'm super grateful to you for taking me under your wing in undergrad um oh I loved it and I'm very proud of you now too so I think you were my first undergrad too that I worked with too so we were kind of like exploring the whole thing together so I learned a lot from you as well thank you and you know the the lab was really interesting because the kinds of things that I would hear you all talk about um I really think I absorbed as much as I could right because it was my undergrad brain so what yeah. I was like 20 <laughs> so yeah. I tried to, to be ab- realistic right? to be realistic like I only could absorb so much and a lot of the technical terms were kind of out of my league at that time but yeah. in my graduate work I think it really helped me a lot because aside from being a sociology minor I think that social psychology kind of really helped me understand how you said the external factors and influences um as far as people's behavior, right? So, like, looking at Definitely. their social context and looking at um, the environment they grew up in or their culture or just the way their brain processes something, I think those kinds of things really have helped me. And now that I'm a, a therapist, um, I can kind of, like, draw on that experience and be like, okay, like, let's think of it this way, too. Like, there might be some other maybe neurological things going on or just the way that they process information or maybe the way they process memory or other things like that. So I think you're absolutely right. Like we need all the branches of psychology. Um, And so, yeah, that's why I wanted to do this interview because I wanted to bring some awareness to what you do and why that's so important. Um, Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's becoming more of a trend now. Um, to include a lot of that in the training for a lot of clinical psychology programs. Um, I teach the advanced social, which is a graduate class here for our graduate program, and our graduate program is clinical. 
So um, I often have students that come in kind of wondering why the heck they have to take this class. And then after the class is over, they kind of walk out going, oh, okay. Like, oh, that <laughs> makes I sense. Why this is really important, you know, because, I mean, we can talk about, I think it's also important to note when you think about social, it's really important to be able to help your your clients and your patients, right? Um, but it's also important to be able to scrutinize yourself. Oh, absolutely. And so we can talk about, you know, we often talk about like putting on the therapist hat or the therapist schema that goes into this and um, or how biases can play into how you are helping a certain person. And so I make it a point to say, yeah, social is really great when you're thinking about who you're working with, but it's also good for you to think about your your part in the relationship as well. And I mean, and it comes into, I've taught also the advanced social and I've also taught a cognitive class over at Auburn, Auburn, the big main campus Mm -hmm. for their PhD um, counseling department. And so they're bringing a lot of that in too, because it is becoming more of a trend now to say, just like you said, Crystal, that we need it. These are important variables to think about when you're trying to help someone, but also when you're thinking about yourself as a therapist as well. Oh, absolutely. There's this thing going on right now in my agency where um, everybody in management is of like the majority culture. So like white square women. (laughs) Right. And so we kind of go back and forth about why it's important to consider adding different policies about who we hire, um, why it's important to have bilingual therapists and kind of just going over like biases, right? Like what happened in the hiring process where all of management ended up being of a certain group, right? So it's kind of like, it's helpful in a lot of different ways. And yeah, especially as a therapist, um, understanding the way your brain is automatically going to do certain things um, and how that can play into the way you treat a client or the chi- the clients that you choose to treat, stuff like that. Um, that's Definitely. so important. I didn't even think of it that way. That's why we have you. So <laughs> that's why we pay you the big bucks. <laughs> that's, that's why I, I plant those little seeds. And, and yeah, I mean, and, it's, and it is important. So I think, um, and we also make a big point in all of, all of, especially the graduate classes, to really just what I said where we need to stop thinking about psychology as different subfields that shouldn't talk to one another, that in fact there definitely needs to be much more communication and sharing of information across the subfields because it's all one puzzle that we're trying to figure out and each piece kind of blends into the other. So it's just important to, even as a clinician, you know, and you know, with the audience, if you're in a, if you're going into a clinical field or you're interested in a clinical field, you don't want to make the mistake of saying, I don't need these other courses. Why should I have to take social? Why should I have to take developmental? Why do I have to take research methods or statistics? Um, because all of those pieces are going to be very important to you to be able to be a successful clinician. Um, and if you're ignoring one aspect, then that's just another tool that you don't have later on. And that's not going to make you very successful. So you need to make, you know, there's the programs are set up the way that they are for a reason. Um, And 
we know what we're doing. It's kind of like I always tell them, like, we know what we're doing. Trust us, kind of a thing. Trust the process and learn what you're supposed to learn so you can do what you need to do later on. That's a great message. That's a great message. And so I wonder if we can kind of jump into kind of your path and why you chose to become this type of psychologist. I knew I wouldn't be good at it as a clinician. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> why I'm not? Fine. Can you tell us why I, not? Oh, I just don't think that I could handle it. It's I'm not the type of person I'm that can just not take things home with me. So I think it would be very difficult for me not to just be overwhelmed with all the sadness and the you know some of the bad things. I also don't know that I would be able. Well, I, I think I probably could now, but I think back when I was making the decision, I just didn't think that I had the patience to deal with it. Um, and now I probably could have, but I'm glad that I didn't because I really am glad where I am. So I chose social really because, and I, I mean, I'm a social psychologist, but my main interest has always been person perception and stereotyping and prejudice and why people hate one another and kind of the negative side of social psychology. And I chose that because I just didn't understand it. I've never understood it. And so it's been a very big motivation for me to do the research and to keep asking the questions because it's something that I'm very passionate about and I still don't fully understand. And so it's easy for me to get interested in the research. And so that's where I chose the area. I also knew that I wanted to teach I've always wanted to teach. It was easy for me to, to, to realize. I mean, when you're going into academia, there's a number of different areas that you can go in. I, you know, you can go into what we call like the R1 research institutions where you're going to be doing mainly nothing but research. So UTEP would be kind of more on the R1 slide where you're really just doing research, 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 research. And most of the classes are being taught by graduate students. Um, and you're not really expected to do a lot of research. Auburn. Alabama, some of the big schools would be like that. I didn't want that. I like doing research, but I really like teaching. So I'm at an institution where it's a little bit of both. So we're expected to teach and we're evaluated on our teaching as well. So if you're you know, a really crappy teacher, it's not probably not going to work out well for you. Um, but you're also <laughs> expected to do research. So it's yeah. a little bit of both. And that's really where I wanted to be. And I'm super happy with it. I love my job. I love coming here. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, and I love the fact that I'm able to guide the new and up-and-coming psychologists, right, with whichever way they go. Most of them go clinical. But um, I like that I've had a little bit of something to do with who they are moving forward and I also love the fact that I can especially in intro um really kind of touch a lot of lives and the fact that I I have a platform where I can attack some of the stigmas especially with with disorders that's when we when I teach about disorders I'm not just telling them here's what schizophrenia is here's I'm kind of going over why you know what this what the myths are and why the stigma and kind of trying to break some of these I you know things that they've walked in thinking about and I like that I have the opportunity to do that and I don't know that I would have had that opportunity if I went into full research and I don't know 
you know, so I think the social, it's, it's interesting because I can take the stereotypes and the clinical stuff together and kind of attack it on both ends. And um, I really, I, I, I have fun doing that. You know, it's interesting because um, I think everybody I've interviewed so far um, that I would say is in the mental health profession, I consider you maybe not a mental health professional, but you're definitely in the mental health profession, right? Because we talk about Mm -hmm. mental health and the brain and all of that stuff. And like you said, they intersect a lot. And so I think it's interesting to hear how the difference um, between somebody who's interested in like clinical stuff and somebody who's interested in more of like how the brain works and maybe how they can influence clinicians and influence future generations of psychologists, but just in a different way. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, because most of mine are, most of my intro students are not going to go into psychology. And so I'm, I kind of feel like this is my job to try to start to change just the population's view of what psychology is and what, what it means to be depressed and that schizophrenia is not what you see on law and order. And, you know, so kind of like kind of attacking some of these myths and hoping that they remember that and and can, can, can continue to share that with others as well. And, you know, you're kind of straightening out some of those things that people believe about psychology or psychologists or about Mm -hmm. mental illness. And so you have a really important role. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you got there. So I understand that um, it's a long road, right? Like You have to really want (laughs) it, I think. Yeah, I mean, you really, it's, so I got my bachelor's in psychology, um, decided I was going to go into social, and so then I had to go, went into the experimental master's program at University of Texas at El Paso, um, which was a big jump for me because I'm originally from Illinois, so I'm from, I was kind of joked, I'm, I, it's, but it's true, I mean, I'm from the cornfields of nowhere in Illinois, um, <laughs> And, you know, no diversity, nothing. It was, you know, it's kind of like white town over there. And so I made the decision that I really wanted to go to El Paso. I wanted to work with um, Michael Zarate. And I wanted to, I wanted to experience the new culture. um, And I wanted to, I thought, man, what a better place, you know, to kind of study stereotyping and, and person perception than right here on the border, and it would be really fun. And so I did that, and I ended up with my master's. And I had my son in the middle of my master's. Um, and then I continued on to the PhD in the social cognitive neuroscience area. So that was all in all, I think, let's see, I graduated in 2002. So it was, and then I, in my bachelor's in 2002, and then 2009 is when I got my PhD. So about seven years. And then I immediately, after that, like I graduated in what, July, like middle of July with my PhD. And I started working here two weeks later. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. So it was a very quick transition. (laughs) I didn't realize how quick that was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I graduated in 2009, but I guess in the summer, like the, you know, the summer, I mean, the spring. No, that's what I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I was summer. 
Okay, so you did summer and I did spring, and then so okay, yeah. I I gotcha. Oh my gosh! So I I got to keep you like through my whole undergrad, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I got, we we were we were buddies. Yeah, and then you know you went. Okay, so tell us about that. What was it like for you to graduate? Then like, okay, I have my PhD now. I have to go get a job, and like. <laughs> I got to look for something that matches me and my interests and like my passion and what my capabilities are. Like, what was that process like? Stressful. Yeah, I can imagine. Everything is stressful, right? Academia is stressful. So you get your job, you can apply. I applied. There's so many, especially for social, um, there are. You know, you think of like clinical being very competitive, and it is competitive to get into graduate programs. Social is not as competitive to get into programs, but they're 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 churning out like a ton of social psychologists, and so it's really difficult to find jobs because once you're in academia, you can you can stay here until you die. Mm-hmm. You know, there's really no reason to leave. So um, you kind of just have to hope that there's some openings and and that you can beat out all the other applicants that are applying for this job. And um, so it is stressful. It's very stressful. And um, I was offered this job here, and I don't think I would have ever said, I'm going to live in Alabama um, before. But <laughs> when I came to visit for this job, I fell in love with the university, and I, and I fell in love with the people who work here. And I'm still, I have the best department. Um, and so it was, but it was stressful. And it's a big jump. I mean, I, I go back to that now and I think, oh my gosh, I, you're just kind of going, I hope I know what I'm doing. You know, I just graduated and now I have graduate students working with me on their thesis. And, and I just kind of like cry. Everyone thinks that I know that I'm, what I'm doing. I hope that they're right. You know, so you really have a really hard time. At least I did for at least the first three years with imposter syndrome kind of peeking its ugly head out quite a bit, like questioning yourself, but then also kind of being surprised when you do know what you're doing and you just have to learn um, to trust yourself and to know that you're not expected to know everything right off the gate and, and, and learn and grow. And if you have a supportive department, like I definitely do, then it's, it's a very easy transition. How did you do it with a son? Because I met him when he was, like, little tiny, I think a couple of times. And so you were handling all of that, juggling everything. Um, What was that like? Well, I I think I was lucky, too, the fact that when we moved, my husband um, took some time off of work. And he, he... went back to school, so he, well, here, um, because we get 50% off of it, I get 50% off of tuition for any dependents, and so, it's like, you should go and finish your college degree, he had never gotten his college degree, so he was able to have a lot of flexibility, and kind of be a stay-at-home dad at that point with going to school, and um, so he took on a lot of that, he went to the, the you know, field trips and, and did all of that. And he was home when Parker got home from school. And, um, and so I was really lucky that I kind of had that as a backup because I don't have any family here. We, it's just us, you know, we've learned to kind of really depend on each other quite a bit. And, 
And, you know, as annoying as husbands can be, uh, he was, he, you know, <laughs> I don't want to give him too much credit, but he really, I, he really did step up and I owe him a lot for that. So I have to give him some credit for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like, you really have to uh, make some very intentional decisions as a couple, if you're, if you have a partner mm-hmm. and then also like really Definitely. strategize about what you're going to do with your children. Um, uh-huh. so yeah, yeah. And then especially if you don't have a lot of like family or, oh, let me just drop them off with this person. And, you know, yeah, we need some, that. yeah. So you really had to do <laughs> Which it. Which I was used to in El Paso, his whole family's from El Paso. And he of course has a huge family. Um, like we all so, do over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so I, and I got, and then of course, um, Parker had two other families that were from his godparents and so i mean i just had help like crazy in el paso um to go from that to no one you know i don't know if i would have been able to have done it without have just driven myself into the ground had not you know had eric not done what he had done so um i do really owe him a lot for that that's awesome. I'm so glad that he, you know, like stepped up and both of you were really working that together. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think this kind of leads into my next question about being the first female chair of your department. Um, uh-huh. You know, because I think like having a family, it just makes me think of how, you know, when I when I read that about you, I was like, OK, so there's like this whole thing about the gender wage gap but then, like, you have a family, and then what it's like to be, you know, breaking through that glass ceiling, right? Like, I'm the first female to have this position, and kind of, like, the expectations that go with that. It was immediately overwhelming for me, and I can't even imagine, <laughs> like, what that was like for you with your firsthand experience. Um, can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? I mean, well, this is my first semester as chair. So I think I'm still learning as I go. I have, I really do have a very supportive department. Um, I don't know that they intentionally never had a female chair before. I think it just kind of worked out that way, Um, especially for the people who are here. I do kind of see my role now as chair and especially as the the first female chair to try to work through and make sure that I'm mentoring and helping out my female colleagues to do what they need and kind of fight for themselves in the way that I see my male colleagues fighting for themselves. Um, So I'll have a male colleague that'll say, well, I'm going to take professional improvement leave in the fall. And so I'm not teaching any classes. I need to do this because I need, I want to go up for a full professor within the next couple of years. And that male colleague will have no problem telling me that. And as chair, I have no problem. I I want him to do that. That's awesome. Um, And I will make the classes work. I'll figure something out. But then I have female colleagues who have time that they could take, that they've earned. Um, One of my female colleagues was just recently the president of the faculty senate here, um, and she has time that she earned because she was the president, and she's hesitant to take it. When When I bring that up, she'll tell me, 
well, I know, but I don't want to do that to the department. I don't want to, you know, oh. put a burden on you. And, and I see that difference. And so then I'll point it out to her, you know, okay, but would so-and-so say this? Would the male colleague say this? And then she's like, no. And I said, exactly. So I don't want you saying that either. You know, if, if this is where we have to make sure that we're kind of fighting for ourselves in just the same way that the others would. And so I, I kind of see an interesting opportunity to do, to change some things that have been happening in the department, not because of malice, but just because of, you know, how we've been socialized, how we've been taught to be. And I think that's kind of, to me, is kind of intriguing. I, I'm, I'm kind of excited about the fact that I can maybe switch some things around here. Yeah, I think, and your research, you know, like all the knowledge you have about biases and implicit bias and like all those things, right? Like <laughs> that makes total sense for the situation that you're in. <laughs> They should have thought before they made me chair, right? It's yeah. like they didn't know what they were asking for, clearly, because <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I. but I mean, I think it's really necessary and it's cool. You know, it's really neat that you have that background because then it's not like you're just, I don't know. An, an angry woman you know what I mean like no, standing no. up for people and being like oh, you all are racist or biased or whatever right or sexist or whatever it's like yeah. this is stuff that I really know about and this exists and this happens and it's time to change that which is that's really cool it's fun I think it's fun yeah I think and I I think it's fun to be able to maybe change how it's going to work in the future too right yeah, yeah. Can you tell me what you think the best part of your job is? Teaching my students, hands down. I love my students. Um, I teach my the population for our, our students are typically first-generation students, lower socioeconomic status, minority students. And... Um, so when you compare us to like Auburn main campus, there's going to be a very different, you know, a very different population that's going to the two schools. And um, I love the fact that I can work with these students and really help them grow. And they're appreciative of all everything that I do. And um, I love that it's smaller. So I really get to know my students and they're just great. They're great kids. I mean, I have kids, I, you know, but they're great people. They really are great people. And I, 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 you know, as chair now, I'm only allowed to teach, I think, four classes a, a year, which is completely, I'm used to teaching like four classes a semester. So oh, wow. I yeah. feel like they've kind of pulled me out of the classroom quite a bit. And, um, to kind of make up for that, I've been advising, like, every student that I can get into. So, you know, like, just to come in and talk to me because I I love that interaction. So that's definitely my most, that's my favorite part of the job, hands down. We are typically, I mean, we're more of a teaching university. So when we think of, like, how our work is divided officially by the administration, 50% um, should be teaching. And then... 
it should be 30% research and then 20% service, which is like the chair, being a chair or coordinating something, you know, working in committees, tons of committee work, etc. Like with most universities, they'll say that teaching is incredibly important, and it, and it is, and it should be. Um, but when you think of promoting promotion or tenure, the number one criterion is still going to be research. Mm. So you're not going to be able to be tenured if you do not meet the research criteria. For teaching, they still want you to meet this criteria, but there's this idea of, well, but we can... We can help fix you, and you might not be the best teacher, but we have, you know, we can do something about that. And research is very clear cut. You don't have X number of publications, no. So uh, it's still incredibly important if you want to be successful in any type of, you know, university where you're doing research as well. So I still have to do research. I still. And I, I, I think I, you know, when you have to do research for tenure, your motivation becomes very extrinsic, right? And so you kind of do it because you have to, because you want to get tenure, and it, it becomes very stressful because publishing is like gambling, right? You never know what's going to hit what reviewers are going to like and what's not, what they're not going to like and what's going to be published. And so it's just this uncontrollable, uncontrollable variable that is very frustrating and stressful. And so I think after tenure, I took a little bit of a break, a step away from research because it was just, I was sick of it. I was tired. I was sick of being stressed out over it. Um, but now that has been a while. Now I step back and it's, it's come back into being more of that intrinsic. I want to do it. I enjoy it. I love it. I love answering these questions. And I think especially, you know, being a social psychologist and all the stuff that's going on right now with current events, it's really, it's really motivated me even more to try to figure out again, what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting time to do research too. But yeah, yeah, it's still very, very important. I see what you're saying. Can you explain what tenure is? Oh yeah, so tenure. Um, when you get your, when you get like a tenure track position, that means that you have usually around five years. It's kind of like you're on a probationary type of job. Like we're going to test you out and see if you're good enough to work here for five years. And when you go up for tenure, you're, you have to prove that you can be a successful work colleague for your whole time here. And so you have to show that you are a good teacher, that you do help the university with service, that you're not just being selfish and just taking care of yourself, that you, you know, you help with some of the committee work and you do all this other stuff. And then you have to make sure that you are able to do research. And so you need to have so many publications um, or whatever the criterion that the department makes. Like this is what we have decided you have to do, the minimum you have to do to be able to stay. And then you go up for tenure, usually your fifth or sixth year. And then it has to go through a bunch of committees that decide if you're good enough or not. And if they decide that you're good enough, then you get to keep your job. You get to be tenured, which means that they 
it's going to be much more difficult to fire you. Right. Mm. So it's kind of like a job security thing. Not that, I mean, if you really mess up, they're going to fire you no matter what, but, um, it's going to, they can't just fire you because they don't like you or something. So you have a bit of a, a job protection. Um, and it's a pay raise too. So you get more money, but then if you don't get tenure, you basically have a year left and then you have to find another job. Oh, I see. So then if you don't get tenure, you can go to another university, maybe work you on could, a tenure yeah. track. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, but then the fact that you didn't get tenure is probably going to go with you. So it's, it's really not a good thing. Oh, wow. That's interesting. No wonder it's yeah. stressful because not everything you put out there is going to get published, right? So then... Exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> that sounds really yeah. scary. And so I'll say you need X number of publications, and if you don't have it, don't even go up for tenure, you're not going to get it. And so you're just, like, crossing your fingers that you get what you need in the, in the amount of time that you need it done. And if it doesn't, then you're... You know, SOL, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's wow. So it can really go either yeah. way. Like, okay, you get yeah. dropped because you didn't get tenure, or like, yay, you have super extra job security. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. It's like two extremes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's... <laughs> but yeah, so that's why it is very stressful, and that's why the research becomes it's you're not doing it for fun anymore. You're doing it basically to survive. Mm. You know, and you're looking back at. I just worked my butt off for seven years in graduate school, and now I've worked here for five years, and if I don't get tenure, I'm throwing all of this work away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, very stressful. There's, so there's a lot on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot at stake. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Academia overall is stressful. Right. So even if you get tenure, you're going to be stressed. Mm. So I think you just kind of learn coping mechanisms to deal with it. Like, I don't know if you've ever, have you seen that TED talk? I can't remember who it is, but there's a TED talk talking about how stress, if you view stress as being something that is adaptive, it can actually be very healthy for you. And I think that's kind of what I've learned to do. Like I've learned that I kind of thrive a little bit on stress. If I'm not stressed to some degree that I'm kind of bored. Mm-hmm. And so I think I've just kind of adjusted to this is stress. And to some degree, I can control it, which makes, you know, I can, I can control my job to enough degree that I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah, like you're able to manage like your workload and just about how much stress you'll be facing. Yeah. Okay. And and, and with academia also, too, you get a little bit of freedom. So I can also say, you know what? I've had enough. I don't need, we don't have classes on Fridays, which is awesome. So I can say, I'm taking, I'm not coming in on Friday. I'm going to take a long weekend. Bye, suckers, and leave, you know. (laughs) Um, And so I can have that freedom where I can say, I've had it. I need a break and, 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 and take that break and take time. And I've also learned I don't wish if Michael hears this, he'd be upset at me, but um, <laughs> I don't work at, I don't work on the weekends. I don't, I do not. 
I used to be where I would take all this stuff home and, you know, with this grand idea that I would be grading and I would be doing this and I, and then I would, I would just end up taking it all back on Monday, not doing it. Um, so I've learned to really, especially with the kids, I just kind of shut, I, I turn all that off after I'm home, I'm home and at the weekend time and the evenings, um, or any days off, I'm with them. And I'm enjoying that time. And then usually, you know, by, by Monday morning, I'm ready to go back to work anyway because they've driven me nuts all weekend. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so it's, it's kind of a, a good – it's a good break. I've learned to take breaks and be okay with that and not feel guilty about it. And I don't feel guilty at all about it. Yeah, it sounds like you've found a balance. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, because there is a certain – point where you have time off and you're like oh my god please I want to go back to work um yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so it's not too much like, of one thing back. yeah that's yeah. good if I were to ask you so let's say there's an undergraduate student that's listening to this and um they want to pursue a similar path to yours what advice yeah. would you give them you know I mean I would just say a couple of things study for your GRE early don't wait on any of those tests. The GRE, the graduate record examination, is not a test that you study for the weekend before you take it. So I would definitely dive into that earlier. Protect your GPA at all costs. Make sure that you are um, doing what you need in your classes because graduate programs are getting more and more and more competitive in every single field. So definitely protect your GPA. Um, but I would also say get involved in research. I mean, do exactly what Crystal did, what I did, um, and get involved in research as an undergraduate. See what research is being done in the programs, um, you know, talking to the professors and getting involved into understanding how research works. I mean, if you want to get into graduate school, that's going to be incredibly important. I would also say as an undergraduate, don't be too freaked out over the fact that you need to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life. Kind of, I always tell, so I'll tell my undergraduates, they're like, well, I want to apply to, I'm thinking between social but I'm also thinking maybe clinical and I'm thinking maybe, but what about educational psychology? Um, and they come to me with this idea that they need to pick. I need to pick one. And I always tell them, apply to all three. There's no, there's no limit, you know? So if you want to apply to a couple educational programs, if you want to apply, let then, you know, kind of let fate take you where you're supposed to go. And, um, you don't need to make that firm decision right now, right? So you can kind of keep your options open and you never know. Try things out. You know, you were talking about in one of your, uh, the one that you sent me, your Facebook Live about <laughs> about your pigeon experience. Um, oh, I yes. Think, you know. Right, so going to a university, and uh, for those of you that don't know that Crystal went to the university and um, worked with a behavioral psychologist and um, worked with pigeons, and she can, I'll never, I'll never forget you coming back and say, I never want to work with pigeons again. Um, <laughs> and she was like, never. 
that's but that that kind of experience you need to kind of whittle those things out right so try yeah, things absolutely. out go try it. you never know you think that you want to do something until you do it and if you are taking a you're taking this class or you're in a research lab and then you realize nope that's not what i want to do okay well that's good too that's all good information just explore if you're in an undergraduate program right now explore because you never know what you want to do until you actually give it a shot yep yeah so that would be my best my best advice Yeah, I totally agree. Getting as much experience as possible. And it doesn't mean just because you go into like research while you're an undergrad means that that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. I mean, look at me. No, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, But, but it's also still important to have that experience. So you understand how research works. Oh, absolutely. Of course. It's all learning. Yeah, of course. And I think that I probably am better equipped to like read articles and look at publications and be like, okay, what kinds of things did they do in their research? Who did the research? How did they do it? What kind of study was it? Because then it helps me make better informed decisions as a clinician. Um, Like, am I going to trust this intervention or not? And so you're absolutely not wasting time. I learned a lot. I really, really did. Even though I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but that's okay. I had had a good supervisor. So that's, I mean, like you really helped me a lot. Like you had a lot of patience. It's funny that you say you don't have a lot of patience because I, I never got the sense that you were like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) frustrated with me. Well, now that I look back, I'm like, I probably would have. I mean, you do have to be. It's just funny because in my perception of clinical psychology, it was so weird. But, you know, you have in order to do my job, you have to have a lot of patience. So I think that I just didn't understand what the heck I was talking about then. You know, I mean, we make a lot of decisions, like you said, when we're that young. So, uh, I mean, I chose psychology as a major, as an undergrad, simply because I read a book and there was a psychologist in it. And I thought, oh, I could do that. And oh. that's why. That's how I <laughs> That's awesome. Now I'm like, what the heck? Don't do what I did. But um, <laughs> but then it worked out. So I guess, you know, so I don't know. We make these decisions and it works out sometimes. For me, it did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're really good at what you do. Super smart. And I think you deserve the chair position. I think you deserve tenure, like all that. I have no doubt that you worked really hard for it. Um, well, thank you. My last question for you is, what's next for you? Let's say in next 10, 15, 20 years, where do you see yourself? Oh, goodness. 20 years. Retiring. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm all, did I just open a can of worms? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, think I, I probably would never retire. I really think that I will be the one that will, you know... I'll die in my office or something. I just don't see myself ever being happy, (laughs) not working and not doing this to some degree. Um, I mean, I would, I, I, I I get to be chair for at least the next six years. So I, I really expect to learn a lot. I've already learned a ton this semester. Um, but I, I really expect to learn a lot of the administration side of the university, which is going to be interesting for me. Um, I 
would probably, and I, I'm saying this, I mean, my ultimate goal would be to do, to stay in, in administration to some degree. Um, so being maybe like a dean, you know, working my way up to a provost or something, uh, you know, being the next, you know, Natalicio would be really cool. Um so I, I would see myself kind of growing in that aspect, but I don't know if I'll change my mind after being chair for a little bit longer, too. Because I do really love the teaching, and you can't do both. So I haven't decided yet, but I do know that I will be doing this to some degree. So I, I don't see myself ever being sick of this job. Awesome. Ever. Ever. You're like, ever. <laughs> ever. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. It was so fun to kind of catch up Yay. and like talk to you. And thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. And I think that the information you gave was super valuable and helpful. I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much. One last thank you to Clarissa Arms Chavez, PhD, for coming on to the podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Arms Chavez, please contact me at hello at through the eyes of a therapist.org. To all of my listeners and subscribers, I know that there are 3,000 plus of you out there, especially the ones who have subscribed on the Podbean app. Thank you so much for uh, contributing to the popularity of my podcast. I also want to thank all of the people who showed up and were interviewed for season two. I really appreciate your time and effort and energy and everything that you do for the mental health community. I am so looking forward to season three where we mix therapy and pop culture. So if you have any ideas on what to record or characters or movies or books that we need to talk about on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or you can visit www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Thanks again so much for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta. Until next time.